And I think that the only way that we can have a serious conversation and a serious understanding that takes away some of our judgment of people who think differently from us on this topic is to understand the history and how the Jewish relationship to interfaith marriage has grown, changed, and evolved. Are you planning a Jewish or interfaith wedding? Are you lost on where to even begin planning the ceremony, let alone finding a rabbi to help you? Well, it doesn't matter whether one of you is Jewish or you're both Jewish. You deserve a guide. So take a deep breath. I promise it will all be okay. Welcome to Your Jewish Wedding with Rabbi Leanne. Here, I can be everyone's rabbi. (laughs) Yours too. My guests and I will share everything we know to help make your Jewish or interfaith wedding full of tradition and perfectly yours. Hello, everyone. It is so wonderful to be here with you today. It is once again Erev Shabbos. And I think that sitting down to record this podcast has become my new motivation to get done with my Friday chores more quickly. So I'm grateful to you for for being here. I I have to tell you this weekend, I have a wedding in Pittsburgh, and it happens to be at the National Aviary, where there will be a penguin attending the wedding. And I I am a little nervous it's interesting. I feel like this little nervousness before basically like any wedding, I think. And I was kind of down on myself about it. Like it's not serious nervousness. It's just like little fluttery feelings in my stomach. Like, oh, is this going to go well? And is my trip going to be good? And will I, God forbid, like have some issues with the car or anything like that? So I think the nervousness is actually good though, because it leads me to be like super extra prepared ahead of time, like on Monday. I took my car in for just a checkup and an oil change to make sure Pittsburgh's only three hours away, but you know, just to make sure because I really want to come through for the couple. And I packed my bag on Monday and have checked it like twice now. So it's very interesting though to see like I've done so many weddings and I still have like a little bit of, you know, like anticipation for each one. So I'm very excited. I'll let you all know how it goes uh, next week. And hopefully you'll see pictures of me and a penguin. Lee Nether, no promises, but hopefully you'll see pictures of me and a penguin on my Instagram feed. Okay. Well, I wanted to dive in to a topic that it needs a big disclaimer, guys. One of the main reasons that couples have trouble finding a rabbi to help them out with their wedding is that the couple consists of a Jewish person and a non-Jewish person getting married. Yes. Interfaith marriages is the topic for this week's episode. And then probably also the next two. When I started preparing for it and doing the research for it, I realized it was far too big of a topic to tackle in just one episode. So I ended up breaking it down into like the history of Jewish interfaith marriages, like literally from Bible forward, that will be today's episode. Next episode is sort of contemporary 
Jewish reactions to Jewish interfaith marriage. This is really interesting. I promise there's been so much development even in the last 30 years. So I guess that last 30 years kind of gets its own episode because that's what's going on right now. And it will be helpful for anybody who's searching for a rabbi or who's maybe feeling some kind of way about having so much trouble finding a rabbi, understand what's going on. And then the third part will be sort of an overview of how to plan an interfaith ceremony. Not so much an overview, but first steps, things to consider when you're speaking with whoever is officiating your wedding and maybe when speaking with your parents too. Um, And then I think, you know, there's so much stuff about other faith traditions and their wedding ceremonies that I'm guessing each one is going to have its own episode on how to really integrate it with a traditional Jewish ceremony. So get excited for all that. This week, though, here's the official start. I need to put this in the timestamp. Let's look at the history of interfaith marriage in the Jewish narrative, Jewish history, and the things that affected what, what is going on with it. Okay. Here, it's time for the disclaimers. Okay. I am not an historian. I have a very rudimentary grasp of all the events along the timeline of Jewish interfaith marriage. So I'm going to do my best here, but as always, I think I say this in every episode, if I say something incorrect or something that you have doubts about, please don't hesitate to reach out. A person who learns is a person who is wise, right? And I always want to be learning new things. And I I love being corrected on things that I make mistakes on. So just know that the disclaimer is I've done my best here and I'm going to do my best to share it as accurately as possible with all of you. On a more broad level, here's my sort of disclaimer reassurance for the whole interfaith marriage introductory series, okay? Parts one through three. I'm going to say this in every episode. Almost every Jewish response to interfaith marriage, so when people have a reaction to interfaith marriage, Jewish interfaith marriage, that comes from the desire to maintain Jewish continuity. The thing we all must remember is that we, the Jewish community, Jewish clergy, make these choices about interfaith marriage based on, in some sense, our sort of internalized notion that our actions can control what happens in the future. So I talked about that in the last episode with premarital counseling. I think everything we do, we're just trying to prevent something bad from happening or trying to make something good happen in the future, right? That's a typical human thing. We have this idea that our actions control what happens in the future. Of course, however, we cannot predict the future. We cannot change the future. And so I want to start these episodes with a disclaimer that I really believe that no matter what a Jewish person or Jewish clergy's response to interfaith marriage I think that we really all are just trying to do our best to maintain that Jewish continuity. I think I truly believe that's the goal for everyone. So keep that in mind. And last, oh, second to last disclaimer, I am only one rabbi among thousands and thousands of rabbis in the world. All of my opinions are my own opinions. They're not the opinions of all liberal rabbis or post-halachic rabbis. They are not the opinions of every female rabbi. They are not the opinions of every wedding rabbi. They are just my opinions. So this topic is something that each rabbi approaches using her own conscience. 
So I really implore anybody who's listening to come at it from that angle. Remember we talked about all the way back in the dates episode, every rabbi has the right to draw his own boundaries around a topic. And I'm just going to really implore you guys to try your best to respect that. Last one. I do not have an agenda to convince Jews to only marry Jews. That is not my focus in this series of three. I do not have an agenda for people to convert to Judaism, which by the way is a very Jewish thing. Jews don't look for converts typically. (laughs) Um, You know, it would be nice to have more Jews. That's kind of what I talked about in the last disclaimer, right? Jewish continuity, growing the Jewish community. But Judaism is not a faith culture community that tries to get people to convert. So neither do I. I'm not here like trying to make the person that you're getting married to want to convert to Judaism. I also, conversely, do not have an agenda to encourage people to go out and specifically find non-Jews to marry, okay? In this episode especially, I am just giving you a rundown of the history to help us all better understand what we're dealing with when we're talking about interfaith marriage. Because here's why. A lot of people in our contemporary age look at it, they see a Jewish person marrying a non-Jewish person, and maybe they've heard that people get upset about it, and they truly are like, what's the big deal? Okay, so I'm. my hope is that especially this episode, well, this episode and the next episode will help everybody get a better handle on why it is a big deal to some people in a negative way, sadly, sometimes, and sort of the enormity of the conversation, the the many, many facets to it. So beginning with the history of interfaith marriage, let's go. One of the coolest things about the Hebrew Bible, in my opinion, is that it spends a lot of time detailing genealogy. So it will tell you about the adventures of some person who was the son of someone who was the son of someone who was the son of someone. For those of you who I've worked with, with your ketubas, by the way, I sort of bring this up every time. Jews love keeping records. And the first thing we need to remember when we're having this conversation about, especially the early days of the Jewish faith in the Jewish story, there just weren't very many of us, not, like not very many Jews. And and there still aren't that many of us. There never have been. So that's another one of the basic facts that underscores this entire conversation, by the way. So the Bible, from the Jewish perspective, okay, if you're not Jewish and you're listening to this podcast, this is something that I think Jews think everybody understands, but especially in a majority Christian country, like it's very different. Our approach to the Bible The Jewish approach to the Bible is that it's a story. And in some places, that story is abridged. In some places, that story has sort of an obscure meaning. And lots of parts of that story do not apply to the way we live our lives now. So the Jewish attitude towards the Torah, especially, but also of the Bible, is that it's a blueprint or a roadmap, if you will, and we are meant to use it to guide us but that the commentary and the interpretation of the Torah of that text can and does change according to things that we experience and things that we discover and things that we learn. If you have questions about that, that's kind of a crazy concept for people who have never approached the Bible that way, who have always seen the Bible as sort of like the law and whatever it says is what it says and that's what it means. That is not 
the Jewish attitude towards the Bible, regardless, especially where we're seeing, we're going to talk about in the Torah, a lot of examples of interfaith marriage. Those examples are part of a story, a drama that the Torah depicts. And different parts of that story, of course, have different focuses. And that is why some people might say that the Bible does have mixed messages about interfaith marriage. So let's go through it. The first Jew ever, Abraham. His wife was someone whose his wife Sarah adopted his monotheistic faith, which was pretty much unheard of at the time. It was kind of a silly idea to a lot of people that why would there only be one God? But Abraham and Sarah were all on board with it. They had a bunch of people traveling with them, surrounding them that also liked the idea. And Abraham was devoted to his wife. Now, when Abraham, quote unquote, converted to Judaism, when Abraham decided to accept the covenant from God, which God said, if you follow me and believe in me that I am only one God and that there is only one God, I will bless you with a land to call your own and descendants as many as the grains of sand on the earth as the number of stars in the sky. It's beautiful, right? By the time Abraham and Sarah were in their 90s, as in they were 90 plus years old, according to the Torah, they still had not had one child. So Abraham starts to get nervous. He's like, hey, God, how am I meant to have all these descendants if I have 0.0 descendants right now? As humans do, he panicked a little. He took on a sort of sub-second wife, Hagar, who was not part of exactly the monotheistic faith. She was maybe um, a friend of Sarah's, maybe a maidservant of Sarah's. Hagar got pregnant, gave birth to Ishmael. Interestingly, that child is considered the primary ancestor by both Jews and Muslims of Islam. So Ishmael was the beginning of that line that became people who practice Islam, Muslims. So in other words, that was sort of an intermarriage and it like ended in a non-Jewish child. Fast forward, Abraham's son with Sarah, which happened later on, wild story, gets married to somebody from the family. I'm not, I don't fully understand the genealogy in the Torah, but I think maybe the rabbis don't understand that either, the, the commentary rabbis from hundreds of years ago. But she was in the family. They have these twin boys, Jacob and Esau. If you guys want to go back and remember your Bible stories at this point, I would not fault you. These are some very detailed and entertaining and unbelievable stories. So go back and read Genesis if you want to read through this. Anyway, the twins, Jacob and Esau, Esau married women who were not from the family. He married women from neighboring tribes who were not, who did not believe in God, who did not believe in the one God. Jacob, on the other hand, married somebody in the family, Rebecca. Esau was sort of cast away from the family. And the rabbis in the Talmud understood that Esau's descendants, although Esau was a direct descendant of a direct descendant of Abraham, became the people who were the Romans slash Europeans. That was the Talmudic understanding. So once again, you have a son of a patriarch marrying not within the family, in other words, not a Jewish person, ended up creating a family line that was not Jewish. Jacob, of course, if you have gone back and, and read your Bible, read sped through Genesis, you have remembered that Jacob married four women, 
and became the father to the 12 tribes of Israel, which are the 12 tribes that every single Jewish person considers an ancestor today. And he is the one who married in the family. Okay. Whatever that says about intermarriage is whatever it says about interfaith marriage. Fast forward about 400 years. The Jews were pretty comfortable in the land of Egypt, lots of fish, nice crops, until suddenly they weren't. They were subjected to slavery, really harsh conditions. Long story short, one of those Jews got disconnected from the people at a young age, ended up spending some time in the desert herding sheep, married a non-Jewish woman whose father was actually a Midianite priest. Okay, Moses married Zipporah. When Moses did the whole thing and went back to Egypt to do the whole let my people go thing, exodus from Egypt, crossing the Red Sea, got back out of Egypt with all the people, his wife was there with his sons. And she had seen all the things that Moses had done for his people and insisted in a very dramatic way that her sons would be considered part of the people of Israel. I don't want to get more in depth than that because it was a, a bit graphic, but go back, read read the story in Exodus. You won't be disappointed. So here we have Moses marrying a non-Jewish person, remaining faithful to that woman, even after reconnecting with his Jewish roots, bringing the people out of the land of Israel. And she, even though it does not say that she became one of the Jewish people, she insisted that her sons were part of the Jewish people. Okay. There are various other stories and rules in the rest of the Torah that make it really clear that the Israelites were not supposed to marry people who weren't Israelites. Okay, so these guys are wandering through the desert for 40 years, keeping to themselves, and of course they come across other peoples. There are injunctions within the Torah that tell the Israelites, do not intermarry with people of the other tribes. What is the reason given for that? Because they worship idols and and strange gods, and they will pull you away from your own faith. They will pull you away from the Jewish people, pull you away from the people who have accepted the Torah at Mount Sinai by this point. I should also note that a lot of these idolatrous tribes were like very dedicated to their idolatry. And it is documented in the Torah that some of these tribes were like child sacrifice tribes, very bloody, really not okay. Of course, the Israelites would warn their people against intermarrying with them, not only losing part of the very small numbers that were wandering through the land of, through the desert, <laughs> wandering through the desert. Um, and so the fewer people you have, the less safety you have, but also like a lot of those tribes, those idolatrous tribes were just like not doing good stuff, you know? So it really makes sense. There's an incident with this guy named Pinchas, who was super zealous and against Israelites even having relations, like intimate relations with people from other tribes. This ends in a very bloody story where he actually kills two such people in the act. It's really bad, guys. Look up Pinchas, P-I-N-C-H-A-S. Google it. You'll see. But then the Torah goes on to say that that drastic action he took ended up in curbing a plague away from the Israelite people. So you see what I'm saying with these with these mixed messages all through the Torah. The interesting thing is, even though it's obvious that this is a whole big bunch of mixed messages, 
All of them remain canonized in the Torah. Why? Because it's not an instruction manual. It's more of a roadmap, right? We, it's a story. We know that this story is meant to be approached, interpreted, and all that. Once in a while, in the story of the Jews wandering through the desert for 40 years, there would be people from other tribes that they would run up against, and they'd be like, ah, I really like living with you guys. Or maybe, can I work for you guys? And they ended up wandering around right alongside the Jews and pretty much doing all the same stuff the Jews did, you know, keeping Shabbat, you know, for all intents and purposes, they looked like Jews, acted like Jews, sounded like Jews. Those people, the Bible is really clear in several places, were still not considered Jews. There was something called a ger toshav, which means a stranger who lives among you or somebody who's not really from your people, but identifies with your people, I guess. And so much so that they've decided to live their life alongside your people. There's some question later on in the Talmud, which we'll get to, about whether the Ger Toshav counts as somebody from another tribe. And this conversation actually continues into the contemporary period, the meaning of Ger Toshav, a stranger who resides among you. Okay. So there's even more drama, actually, around Moses and his wife, because there's an episode in Deuteronomy where Miriam and Aaron are sort of complaining about Moses' wife and telling him she has too much influence here and she's not even one of us. And they say she's a Cushite woman, which the rabbis identified with actually also very dark-skinned people. So it's not clear whether that's the same wife that he had at the beginning of the story or whether it was uh, a wife he acquired along the way. But when Miriam and Aaron complained about her in, in the story in the Bible, they were punished pretty severely by God. God actually struck Miriam with leprosy as a punishment for complaining about Moses' wife this way. And a lot of interpretations of this story actually reflect on the fact that leprosy was a disease that showed itself in like white scales on the skin. And they see it as sort of a literary irony that because Miriam was complaining about a dark-skinned woman, she her all of her skin was made that much the lighter. Now, the Torah, the story of the Torah spans over thousands of years, okay? The, the more focused story spans like 500 years. And we can now fast forward to the next real record we have in our faith and in our tradition of conversations about interfaith marriage. Jewish interfaith marriage. So, of course, the Jewish people, as they were writing the Talmud, were not living in the land of Israel. We are a people who has continued to wander pretty much continuously with a short break um, for settling in the land of Israel and having our temples. They were destroyed in pretty quick order, and we ended up on the road again, as they say. And so the rabbis of the Talmud were actually not living in an exclusively Jewish area. They also were, you know, in the diaspora, groups of Jews learning together in small little pods in, in various different places. All of this to say is they're still surrounded by people who are not Jews. And you can tell this in Jewish interfaith marriage was a concern of theirs or something they were thinking about. Why? Because they talked about it. So the rabbis of the Mishnah and the Talmud, which were the first two bodies of Jewish discussion, Jewish law, Jewish guides for living based on the Torah, 
were really a little confused about this line in the Bible that said, do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons because they will turn your sons away from following Adonai to serve other gods. The rabbis of the Talmud were like, okay, that's, we understand. But when you say do not intermarry with them, who's them? Some of the rabbis came back with the answer that it, them, do not intermarry with them, actually only included those tribes that were like sacrificing their kids to fire gods in the mountains. So to me, that makes sense because, of course, it seems to me like a pretty substantial difference in lifestyle between being wandering Jews with tents in the desert and sacrificing your babies to idols. Okay. That seems pretty incompatible to me. And now we're not dealing with bloodthirsty, idolatrous tribes anymore. We're just like in Europe. It's okay. These people are mostly normal. Okay. So the Jews are like, in the Talmud, are like, ever since we've been kicked back out of the land of Israel, we see these people all the time. And, you know, mostly we get along. Sometimes it was more with the Muslims. Sometimes it was more with the Christians. But these people are certainly not sacrificing their children to, you know, idols. So eventually, though, they settle on the rabbis of the Talmud settle on, you know, do not intermarry with them really just means all of them, them being people who aren't Jewish. And why? I think it's a reflection on just the tumultuous experience of being a minority, a Jew, living among people who were largely suspicious of you. This is a thread we're going to see running through this whole conversation, by the way, a wariness about who you can trust. So there was an early note from the reform movement of Judaism that said this, quote, the Talmudic invalidation of all mixed marriages. So in the Talmud, when they were saying, no, you can't marry anybody who's not Jewish, here's what it meant, that an insurmountable wall had been put up between the Jewish and pagan communities. So that means that after the discussion in the Talmud, a marriage to a non-Jew was simply not recognized in the body of Jewish law. Enam tofasin, that was the phrase, we don't recognize that. In other words, that's not an actual marriage. That family unit did not exist as far as the Jewish community was concerned in the time of the Talmud. And because of that, they were effectively ex excluded from the community. Okay, If two people Back then, a Jewish person and a non-Jewish person got married, but it wasn't considered a marriage. That meant they were living together in an intimate relationship, which was not a marriage. Big problems excluded from the community. Okay, The union had no Jewish legal status. And at the time, we also had laws coming from Christian communities, from, from the Pope, and from, I guess, the people who wrote laws for Christians that no, it's the same on our side. If one of our people marries one of your people, also it's not a marriage. So these couples would, in effect, have nowhere to go. And that's why the CCAR responsa, the, the reform movement responsa, the letter, said that that was why nobody ever got intermarried then, because it was societally impossible. Okay, we're moving forward to early medieval times. So this is past the time of the Talmud. Now there are actual solidified church prohibitions prohibitions against interfaith marriage with Christians. Okay, so the Christian, like the Catholic Church is saying, you can't marry a Jew. And Jewish 
lawmakers, lawmakers, it makes it sound like, you know, like the House of Representatives, people, Jews who were writing about Jewish law, which other people followed, um, they had just as much of a reaction to intermarriages with even Muslims. And at this time, in early medieval times, Jews and Muslims were getting along really well. You know, Muslims, I think, in general, are, are marginally more chill about interfaith marriages. I have, there's an imam I want to have on this podcast. He is so unique and so knowledgeable, and, and hopefully he'll be able to speak more about the history of, of Muslim intermarriage historically. In, in any case, in the early medieval times, marrying a non-Jew literally meant marrying out. So if you were to marry a person who was not Jewish, in order to do that, you you would be forced to convert to the other religion. So if you're a Jewish person, falls in love with a Muslim person, the only possible way for you to marry that Muslim person would be to convert to Islam. So the phrase marrying out, I know it sounds harsh, but I want you guys to understand that the phrase and the idea comes from this time when it marrying somebody who was not Jewish meant actual literal separating yourself from the Jewish community. You couldn't walk into a synagogue. You couldn't live with your family. You maybe couldn't even see your family ever again. And because of the way that Jews moved through the world as a result of the Crusades and, you know, fast forward to the Spanish Inquisition, it was not easy to be Jewish in Europe. There were lots of ghettos all over Europe in which Jewish people were forced to live. There was Almost no integration between Jews and the non-Jewish community in these times. So all the more so in that in those times, in medieval times, marrying somebody who was not Jewish was literally marrying out. And it remained that way until the Enlightenment, the European Enlightenment, 1800s, by the way. So going back a little bit to the medieval times, by the time we get around to the Rambam and the tour early mid-medieval commentaries, they basically take all the questioning of the Talmud and just shut it down. They're saying, listen, the climate around our interactions with people of other faiths has changed in the past couple centuries. It's really clear to us now that when the Torah said, do not intermarry with them, them really, really does mean anybody who's not Jewish. In case any doubt remained, in case you're looking at the Talmud and seeing this rabbi or that rabbi said, well, does it really have to be anybody who's not Jewish? The Rambam and the tour who were two Jewish thought leaders um, writing massive bodies of Jewish law that are still followed today, took all the questioning out of the Talmud, shut it directly down. Nope, it's definitely not okay. Okay, so remember, Jews were victims of Gentiles at this time because of their Jewishness. The origins, some of the most basic origins of anti-Semitism are developing around this time, mostly based on Jews as moneylenders. Not that they obviously go all the way back to the New Testament, but really start kicking up around this time. If somebody was Jewish, it was like having a target on his or her back. It was almost unthinkable, actually, that somebody who was not Jewish would even consider marrying a non-Jew. Once again, Jews were not considered even human on several levels. And there's a lot of scholarship around this. I don't know a lot about um, medieval anti-Semitism, but uh, there are people who do, I'm sure, whatever. Maybe I'll link some books. So in some contemporary communities, that idea exists to this day. That is to say that some people still have such a negative attitude about Jews and or one American's life 
on the day-to-day basis what she wears, what she eats, where her children go to school, will be so fundamentally different from the life of some Orthodox Jews in exactly the same ways, what he wears, what he eats, where the children go to school, that it is unfathomable that those two people could get married. Nearly unfathomable. Because why? If those two people got married, it would force a lifestyle change so severe that that Jew would be marrying out. Unless the non-Jewish person converted, which is a topic for a whole other discussion. We're going to take a quick break and come back to a more modern conversation. Let me tell you guys, I got to start getting some guests on this podcast. I won't go into it. The reason that I don't have guests on this podcast is not because I'm afraid people won't like me. It's that I want to get some podcasts like into the world uh, to actually just build my street cred, honestly, and and make people see that I'm serious and um, just sort of hear how I am on the podcast. But gosh, solo podcasting, especially for these deep dive episodes, which let's be honest, is every episode here on Your Jewish Wedding is a deep dive episode. It seems like it's turning out that way. I cannot seem to drink enough water, so I need those breaks. Thank you for your patience. Let's talk about societal changes in the modern and contemporary eras and how they've influenced attitudes about interfaith marriage and Judaism. So you might have been saying this whole time, like, Rabbi Leanne, I've read about so many people who have married you know, in Jewish interfaith marriages from hundreds of years ago. And there's so many stories. How is this still even something we're talking about? So let's ease into that. So the Enlightenment in Europe was a period where people were just really thinking outside the box in terms of religion and the tribalism that came along with that. The development of Reform Judaism. Fun fact, a lot of people don't know this, but Reform Judaism was the first movement of Judaism to really be developed. Why? Because before then, everybody was just a Jew. Reform Judaism was made up of Jews who were really influenced by the Enlightenment but and, and wanted to integrate with the worlds of science and academia and, and study and work and live alongside non-Jews, which was just becoming possible. But they wanted to retain their Jewish identity, and they still believed in the Torah as a holy book. And they they were not willing to completely assimilate, uh, assimilate and renounce their Judaism. So Reform Judaism made Jews in the Enlightenment, some Jews in the Enlightenment, start to study and explain Torah and the Bible in a way that made non-Jewish people take them seriously and listen. And so even though they were still obviously Jews, they began to integrate. Because when you have upward mobility in a community, and that community is allowed to not live in the ghetto anymore, they begin to assimilate on some level. Meaning their lives day-to-day, remember we talked about the day-to-day, their lives day-to-day look a lot more like their non-Jewish neighbors. They wear the same clothes. The reform rabbis were even eating the same food, they were sending their kids to regular secular schools. Okay. So this began the process that has taken 150 years, bringing us all the way up till now, where Jews are slowly becoming not so much other and sort of mostly white. 
you know, now I think Jews are, even if they're not considered white, they're considered white passing. That wasn't true 60, 70 years ago. We have, as a society, eased into the concept of a Jewish person being somebody that a non-Jewish person would even consider marrying. But we sure have gotten there, okay? That's changing. So just a little history. Since about uh, the 1970s, there has been something going on every 10 years. So the first one was in 1970, the National Jewish Population Survey. That was a questionnaire that asked American Jews about their Jewish lives, their identification with Jewish practice, whether they kept kosher, where they were sending their kids to school, how much knowledge of Hebrew they had, all kinds of questions about Jewish life. The first National Jewish Population Survey, from my understanding, again, correct me if I'm saying something wrong, they didn't even ask about intermarriage because in the 1970s, it was so rare. I believe they started asking about interfaith marriage in the second National Jewish Population Survey, which was in the 1980s. And they noticed that a not small number of Jewish people were starting to marry non-Jewish people. The number rose in the 1990s. And I think in the 1980s and the 1990s, it was a small enough percentage that the Jewish leadership in the Jewish community was not too fussed about it. But what happened in the year 2000? The number of Jewish people who reported being in an interfaith marriage was 52%. If you were involved in Jewish life around the year 2000, so I had just graduated from high school in the year 2000, I was entering college, this was the hottest topic in Jewish scholarship. Everyone was talking about interfaith marriage. There's a podcast series I want you all to listen to if you are entering into an interfaith marriage or thinking about entering into an interfaith marriage called Breaking the Glass. And it was a six-part series. So it was a limited series. There's only six episodes. She does a really good job of breaking down this whole historical moment. I believe in episode three, and I will link it in the show notes. This number, 52%, it triggered a crisis is what the Breaking the Glass podcast said. And I think that it it encapsulates it perfectly. So before then, it had just been rumblings about, should we be concerned about this? Oh, look, more and more Jews are starting to marry non-Jews. By the time the NJPS came out in the year 2000, there was a full-on freak out. You saw article after article, paper after paper, news report after news report, talking about what in the world does this mean? What are we going to do about this? There was a group of Orthodox rabbis, according to this other article from Brandeis, I will link you to, a, one group of Orthodox rabbis in the United States described this 52% number as indicative of a second Holocaust. To give you an idea of how seriously freaked out people were by this, another rabbi wrote into the Los Angeles Times saying, quote, we are probably witnessing the last generation of Jewish life in America as we now know it. Leslie Fielder, who's a literary critic, predicted, quote, an end to a separate Jewish identity, whether defined racially, religiously, or culturally. Alan Dershowitz, who is a Harvard Law School professor, warned that the Jews were, quote, in danger of disappearing. Intermarriage is a threat to our survival as a people. So you may be saying like, oh my gosh, well, I'm listening to this podcast and I'm thinking about an interfaith marriage slash wedding. And 
whether you're the Jewish person or the non-Jewish person in that relationship, either you or the person you love has a pretty strong Jewish identity, right? Otherwise, you wouldn't even be thinking about having a Jewish wedding. So between in the last 20 or so years, all these panicked predictions about what would happen to Jewish identity, Jewish life, um, the Jewish people surviving at all in America, they, they didn't turn out to be true. That's not what happened. I was really moved by these arguments. I remember being a college student and thinking, okay, well, of course, if if so many Jews are marrying non-Jews, it's so much easier. I think was the idea. It's so much easier not to be Jewish. And we live in a primarily non-Jewish culture. It's just difficult to be a minority religion or culture. Not difficult in the way like I feel sad or I feel persecuted even necessarily, but nobody knows about your holidays. And if they do, they kind of only know a little bit about them. Or if they do, they know about that one that's really close to Christmas and there's candles, right? You have to beg for days off for Jewish holidays. You have to cook special food that's not available in the grocery store at your holiday time. You have to bring lots of objects into your house that help your family celebrate all the Jewish holidays. Things aren't set up for things to be closed on Saturdays. So your soccer game is always going to be at the same time as synagogue, right? It's really difficult to be Jewish, to, to maintain that Jewish identity, yes. And so the automatic assumption from the Jewish community was, so people are just going to quit. But it hasn't turned out that way, like I said. So there have been some recent surveys by the Brandeis Cohen Center for Modern Jewish Studies and the Pew Research Center. Okay, so you guys know the name Pew. There's also another organization doing these surveys from Brandeis University within the last few years, so around 2020 or later. So these surveys, I'm going to give you the first number. In America, there are 7.6 million Americans that say they are Jewish. Okay, whatever, Rabbi Leanne, what does that even mean? I'll tell you. That number is an increase in the number of American Jews since 1990, a 35% increase. It's not nothing. So we've got all these Jews marrying non-Jews. That meant in the year 2000, we were sure that meant we were just going to disappear. What happened? No. Our numbers increased by quite a lot. Of course, there are several factors to this. Of course, we had a large influx of immigration of Jews from the former Soviet Union and from Israel a little bit. There are movements of Judaism, Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox movements of Judaism, where one of their main objectives is to make up for the population loss that we experienced in the Holocaust. So they're having six, eight, 12 kids. That accounts for some of it. But a big cause, we think, a big cause of this increase in the number of Americans identifying as Jewish is intermarriage. And why do we think that? Because according to the Pew survey, according to the Pew Research Study, of all the intermarried couples that are out there, about two-thirds of them are raising their children Jewish. So that means in a typical intermarried family where there is one Jewish parent, one non-Jewish parent who have two kids, if those two-thirds of those families continue to raise their children as Jewish, that will create a, a Jewish population doubling in a generation. I want to take a moment to sit with that, okay? 
Because since the year 2000, when 52% of American Jews were marrying non-Jewish people, the number of intermarriages since 2020 has risen to 72%. So that event that everyone predicted was going to decrease the Jewish population has increased and the Jewish population has increased along with it. I don't say this to communicate my opinion on the topic. It is literally an observation based on rigorous research. And I will link to these studies, these population surveys, so that you guys can check them out for yourselves. It's really fascinating stuff. So by the way, that 72% is only among non-Orthodox Jews. I think it probably goes without saying that among Orthodox Jews, the rate of intermarriage is 2%. People who consider themselves Orthodox but still married somebody who's not Jewish, I guess that's 2% of the Orthodox Jewish population and you know, good luck to them. But that 72% rate is among non-Orthodox Jews, so maybe now it makes a little more sense. And the stats that those two-thirds stats are coming from the Pew Research Center, their new study on American Jews, they are saying 57%. Okay, so I guess that's almost two-thirds or almost six out of 10. Okay, current intermarried couples with children are raising those children Jewish. Oh, and another 12% raising their kids partly Jewish. Okay, so we get up to almost 70%. So partly Jewish, I think it just means that they're doing Jewish stuff with their kids and their kids are aware that they're Jews. Altogether, the study found... This is from their report. Two-thirds of intermarried couples are raising their kids with some Jewish identity, a rate that seems to have risen over time. In addition, the study report says, nearly half of adults under 50 who are children of an interfaith marriage. Okay, so people who are adults now but grew up with one Jewish parent and one non-Jewish parent, half of them still identify as Jewish. And this was in the face of all the freaking out saying how bad interfaith marriage was. Still half of those kids identify as Jewish. So that concludes this episode. I hope I've given you an idea, a rudimentary grasp on the history of interfaith marriage and what has affected Jewish attitudes towards it up until now. Again, very rudimentary history, just as I understand it. I am not an historian. Please add to the conversation. Correct me if I'm wrong. Email me at yourjewishweddingpodcast at gmail.com. And I will certainly add your amendments into the next episode for sure, if I get them before I record. (laughs) In the next episode, we are going to talk about modern slash contemporary attitudes, mostly contemporary, because we did go through a little bit of the modern intermarriage freak out. (laughs) And we will talk about in the next episode, how there are basically three camps of attitudes towards interfaith marriage, Jewish interfaith marriage. It's not bad at all. It's not so bad, or it's the worst. Those are the three camps that we're living with now in in the uh, contemporary discourse around interfaith marriage. So I hope that you will join me for that next episode. Once again, I want to remind everyone who's listening to this that I understand that discussion about this topic is difficult. And I know that so many of us are so emotionally connected We feel it in our kishkas, in our guts, when someone talks about interfaith marriage in any kind of a negative way. And I hope that if you've listened to this and you've felt any of that reaction in your kishkas, I want to remind you that I am a rabbi who knows, loves, works with many interfaith, Jewish interfaith couples. My job is to help you and to root for you. 
And I think that the only way that we can have a serious conversation and a serious understanding that takes away some of our judgment of people who think differently from us on this topic is to understand the history and how the Jewish relationship to interfaith marriage has grown, changed, and evolved. And so if I sounded blunt or too straightforward in this conversation, please know that I did not do that with any kind, any shred of contempt, any bone in my body of disapproval of your relationship and of the wedding, marriage, and life that you are planning with a couple that is has one Jew and one non-Jew. I am sending you in this closing all my love and asking for you to continue listening with an open mind. And more than that, to please feel free to contribute to the conversation. Send me a message. I want to hear from you. Once again, your Jewish wedding podcast at gmail.com. We're going to learn about this together and we are going to do this together and it is going to be beautiful. Until next time. Well, everyone, I have had the best time being your rabbi for this episode. I'm so glad you joined me for another little bit of insight into planning your perfect Jewish or interfaith wedding. Until you can smash that glass on your big day, you'd might as well smash that subscribe button for this podcast. I don't want you to miss a single thing. Remember, you can always find me, Rabbi Leanne, on Instagram at at your Ohio Rabbi, all one word, for even more tips, tricks, recommendations, and wisdom on Jewish weddings. If you want to work with me on your wedding, you'll find all the info you need at yourohiorabbi.com. Until next time, remember, you deserve the perfect wedding for you. Don't settle for anything less.